This episode is brought to you by newspapers.com, home to more than 700 million digitized pages of historical publications. We'll be talking with Jenny Ashcraft from newspapers.com about what you can find later in this episode. Welcome to the January 2022 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I am Lisa Louise Cook. Have you ever wondered what it would take to become a forensic genetic genealogist and work on criminal cold cases? Dr. Claire Glenn has created a new postgraduate certificate in that field, and she's here to tell us more about it. Then we are launching a new segment here on the podcast. It's called Family History at Home, in which we're going to explore different ways of using your research, including telling family stories, crafting, and preserving research for future generations. In this episode, author Sophia Wilson's going to be here, and she's going to lay out five steps for writing your family's history. And I'm happy to say that Jenny Ashcraft is here from newspapers.com to share some stories that really illustrate how newspapers fill in the story of your ancestors. Then in our Best Websites for Genealogy segment, we are jumping into the newly released 1921 UK Census, and author Rick Kroom has some tips for us that we can use over at findmypast.com. And you can bet that Family Tree University has some great new courses, so we will stop by the editor's desk to chat with Amanda Epperson about that. Let's start off with some tree talk with social media editor, Rachel Christian. Well, it's a new year, and there's a lot to look forward to when it comes to genealogy. And I know that our social media editor, Rachel Christian, has been thinking a lot about this and asking folks about what they're looking forward to online. And she's got some ideas for us. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, gosh, there's lots to look forward to, I think, when it comes to genealogy. We can all, we all, you know, set new objectives. Have you been out on social media kind of trying to find out what people are going to be working on? I have, yes. I went on social and I asked our followers what they're most looking forward to in 2022. And not surprisingly, most people said the census. As you know, the 1921 census of England and Wales was released this week. Mm -hmm. And that's been really fun to kind of scroll through Twitter and see what discoveries people are making. That's It's been pretty cool to see. And then, of course, in April, we have the release of the U.S. 1950 census to look forward to. And I know that over on your YouTube channel, you guys have been talking about that and kind of getting ready for that, which is something I think we're all looking forward to. Absolutely. Gosh, it's going to be so fun. I mean, just finding my own parents and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. And I know I think for the 1921 census, if I'm not mistaken, for the U.K., that's pretty much kind of the last one for a while because... Then we get closer to World War II, and and there's not the regular census taking that we would normally see. So it's a big year for us now to get our hands here and across the pond on on census records that are new to us. Definitely. It's, It's interesting to look at the 1921 census because it's such a unique time. I mean, it's the interwar period, and those countries were also reeling from, you know, disease. It's It's almost too real. Yeah, well, so that makes a lot of sense that a lot of folks are busy getting their hands on one and waiting for the next. How about you? What are you um, looking at and kind of getting into as the year gets off? So, you know, as the social media editor, I spend a lot of time just surfing the web, to be honest, and (laughs) 
And one thing that I've noticed and I've really enjoyed kind of in the wake of the pandemic is a lot of libraries and museums and archives have really put a lot of effort into creating beautiful online resources where people can explore their holdings. So that's kind of a trend I've been noticing and one that I really hope continues uh, in the new year. I thought I'd just mention a couple sites that I thought were worth checking out if anyone's interested. The first one is from the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and they uh, just launched something they call the Searchable Museum. And if you go to that website, the first message you'll see, the big text says, it's a place to explore the history and culture through an, through an African American lens. And what it is, is essentially a collection of online exhibits, and you can look at photographs and records and watch videos, you can listen to audio recordings, you can take awesome 360 degree tours of certain locations and buildings. And it's a really immersive experience. That's something that I really enjoyed, especially if you're interested in African-American history. So that is the Searchable Museum from the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Great. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And um, it is interesting to see so much more coming online, maybe things we wouldn't even normally have seen come online. Another one that I love, uh, this time from the British Museum in collaboration with Google, is a site called uh, The History of the World. And what it is, is essentially an interactive timeline. I'll try and describe it. I really recommend people check out the show notes and, and find the link and look at it. But it's a timeline of the entire world starting at AD 2000. Yeah, so you click on an event and it will pull up this little audio clip and information. And it's really, it's a great bird's eye view of kind of you know, human history as we know it. Uh, I could really get lost looking at that site. So how, how uh, detailed does the information go in terms of, is it all kind of globally focused or is it digging into particular areas of the world specifically? Yeah, so they have uh, different areas like the Americas, uh, Asia, they kind of you know divide up the continents on that basis and they color code the events for each location. So you can follow different threads and you can also toggle on and off certain themes. So if you want to look at, you know, art history and you can highlight that and go on a journey through the different times and locations of the world according to that. So if that interests you at all, any of you world history geeks, that is History of the World from the British Museum in collaboration with Google. We'll have a link in the show notes, of course. Great. So some some kind of new and interesting places to explore online. And of course, in 2022, we've also got Roots Tech, which is happening, which is going to be another place to explore and tons of uh, video classes, right? Oh, yeah. It's really changing, isn't it? I mean, this is the second year that Roots Tech has been completely online, and what a resource for family historians. It's, I think last year, if I'm remembering correctly, it drew over a million registrants, and that's just incredible. I'm excited to see you know, how these online events keep changing, and it's really moving beyond like text and images on a page, you know? Exactly. And for people who never had an opportunity to attend Roots Tech in the past when it was in person, uh, they can head to rootstech.org. Check it out. Speaking of the 1950 census, I'm doing a series of three sessions at Roots Tech, walking through all the different elements and aspects of the 1950 census. So you can really dig into it and kind of know what you're looking at. So I've had a lot of fun putting those video sessions together. 
Well, there certainly is a lot to look forward to in 2022. So uh, thank you so much, Rachel. And again, we'll have links in the show notes to the websites that she mentioned. Thanks. Have you ever wondered what it takes to be a forensic genetic genealogist solving criminal cold cases? Well, Dr. Claire Glenn is joining me today to uh, talk about the forensic genealogy field and the new certificate program that she's developed at the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences at the University of New Haven. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you so much, Lisa. This is such an exciting, emerging kind of a field, and you've really been out there on the forefront of it. So I think we should probably start at the beginning, which is, what is a forensic genetic genealogist? Well, that's a great question to start off with, because lots of people are always very curious about it, uh, especially because it's such a brand new field. Really, we can uh, say that this field established at the forefront of forensic investigations uh, in early 2018. Now, the term forensic genealogy had actually been around since, I think, 2002. Mm -hmm. But forensic genealogy is really a different thing to forensic genetic genealogy. Uh, forensic genetic genealogy is all about taking everything that we know about genetic genealogy, so GG, as I like to call it, uh, and applying that to a criminal investigation. So either into an investigation of what we call unidentified human remains or UHRs or as the public more commonly know them as as Jane and John Doe cases so identifying unidentified human remains or in what we call suspect cases whereby we have DNA left behind at a crime scene by a perpetrator of a violent crime such as homicide or sexual assault and trying to identify who that perpetrator is by using our genetic genealogy skills. Wow, it's an incredible field. It's amazing how it just kind of burst onto the scene. I'd love to have you tell yeah. us about the program. You mentioned sure. it's a certificate. So my guess is at this mm -hmm. point, there's not certification available yet, but there is a, a mm -hmm. certificate and a field of study. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, with certification and then doing a graduate certificate in anything, they're two very different things. Um, you can do a graduate certificate or even an undergraduate certificate in many fields of study. Um, and especially today, you know, uh, especially in the last three to five years, uh, higher education has seen a huge demand for what we call micro credentials, which are certificates, right? Because they're not full degree programs. They aren't 33 credits or 120 credits for a bachelor's, 30, 30 plus credits for a, a master's degree. A certificate, and here in the state of Connecticut by the Office of Higher Education, um, a certificate is 12 credits or more right? It needs to be a minimum of 12 credits, 12 university credits. And so with our graduate certificate, the program itself is 12 credits. So four courses of three credits. There is an optional elective or additional elective that's available as well. So it could be 15 credits if you want. 
So with the program, um, whenever I set, sat down to kind of say, okay, I need to plan a program, I need to develop a program in this, we have the infrastructure here at the University of New Haven to be able to do so. Uh, we have, you know, the online learning management system. Um, and also we have kind of the prestige in the criminal justice and forensic science field that people would want to take a program like this with us. And so I said, well, what would I include in a, in a program such as this? And what I was seeing, and thankfully, you know, I have to say a thanks to all of the online Facebook groups and forums and everything surrounding forensic or investigative genetic genealogy. I was reading the comments and I was reading the questions of what people want to learn and what they're lacking in their knowledge currently and what they're hungry for. So I could see that there is a lot of not misinformation, but uh, confused information as to what already happens in a forensic DNA investigation. What do we currently do? Forensic genetic genealogy aside, when we have a crime, what is the physical evidence that is at a crime scene? How do we collect it? How do we preserve it? What do we do with it? How do we say that this red stain is blood or this whitish stain is semen? How do we tell that? What chemical tests do we use to do that? Then importantly, what DNA information can we get out of that sample? What type of DNA analysis do we perform to either compare it from a suspect DNA profile that has been collected or run it through our criminal DNA database, such as CODIS here in the United States, or it's called something else in other countries? Um, and what's the process for all of that? And what are the rules and the regulations and, and the criteria and the standards that we have to adhere to for analysing all of those types of samples. Also things like uh, touch or transfer DNA analysis, so minute quantities of DNA, or recovering DNA from heavily compromised samples such as um, uh, skeletal remains, highly decomposed bones, uh, teeth, things like that. So I could see that people weren't really uh, a, a large uh, portion of the comments that I was seeing was people being curious about, well, how do we do this? Why can't we connect GEDmatch to CODIS? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 they're apples and oranges. They're two di very different things. So I thought, okay, well, the first course in the program should be a fundamentals of forensic biological evidence. So what do we currently do? What is our regular forensic DNA profiling process and what is CODIS and what are our, what are our national criminal DNA databases and then importantly this is one people often get confused is what is familial DNA searching because that is not forensic genetic genealogy at all that is something else that we've been doing for years in the forensic community whereby we're comparing STR short tandem repeat forensic DNA profiles within a criminal DNA database looking for uh, first order direct direct relatives, so aunts, uncles, parents, siblings. Um, and with that, I said, okay, that's the first course. So that gets people up to speed of what do we do in a regular forensic investigation? Because currently, as the Department of Justice um, interim policy regarding forensic genetic genealogy, all of that has to happen before an FGG investigation is even begun. So then the second course is, right, well, what is forensic genetic genealogy? 
What can we do with the results from consumer DNA testing? What are the databases that we are allowed to use, such as GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA? What can we do with the genetic data that we can harvest from those databases? What's a center Morgan? You know, what does shared DNA mean? Um, uh, and what tools are out there to help us decipher this information? So that's the second course is going through all of that in-depthly, going through the X chromosome, the Y chromosome, autosomal consumer DNA testing, uh, and also importantly, the ethical implications and privacy implications of doing this type of analysis. Then after the genetic genealogy component, so we've put it into our database, into GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA, we find our top 10 matches, we have our Centimorgan value, we use our shared CM project tool to infer what potential relationship that is. We start to build a family tree using that genetic data or genetic information because it's not necessarily data, it's, it's information. And then how do we build those trees out further of the non-genetic matches because they're not in the database? And how do we um, uh, use traditional genealogy, as I like to call it? Some people don't like it when I call it traditional genealogy, though. They may, they, I, I understand their reasoning, though, because it sort of makes it sound like that's the old way of doing it. But it's not. <laughs> it's what we currently do with our regular genealogy of finding those records and also, importantly, um, verifying those records and making sure that they're true and accurate. Uh, and all of the different um, genealogy standards and the genealogy proof standard and adhering to all of uh, essentially the rules, as I like to call them, uh, from the board for the certification of genealogists. That's the third course. So you're taught, what do we do in forensic investigations? What's genetic genealogy? What's regular genealogy? So genealogy principles and methods. And then the fourth course, the final course in the program is our forensic genetic genealogy practicum. So that practicum, it's not a traditional course, right? There's no lecture material. There's no videos to watch each week. There's no readings for you to do. It's here's a mock case. Go solve it. Everything that you've learned over the three previous courses, apply that to this case. So with that, I create mock uh, cases of Jane and John Doe's, or they could be suspect cases. Uh, and basically, I provide the student with a, a GEDmatch kit number that I've uploaded. I've gotten permission. It's gone through our institutional review board approval for uh, inclusion in this. Uh, and the volunteer who gave me the DNA, their DNA um, data set uh, has uh, provided informed consent. And I anonymize that sample. And then I provide the students with the kit numbers. And I say, okay, here's your case. This is a Jane Doe, uh, estimated age 30 to 50 years, uh, possibly Caucasian or possibly Latina or possibly African-American. And then they have to run with it and they have to um, apply everything that they've learned to try and solve the case. And from this past cohort, so we, we completed our um, first cohort in uh, August, September there, uh, around that time, um, the results were phenomenal from the practicum. I was overwhelmed and overjoyed with 
the uh, excellence of the students from our first cohort and their ability to correctly identify people within uh, their practicum. There's also the opportunity, um, we have some internships available because we've uh, established very collaborative uh, partnerships with some of the uh, forensic genetic genealogy providers out there. Uh, and many of them are reaching out to me now asking, can we take some of your students next year, which is great to see. Um, and so with that, this past year, we had some students uh, intern with the DNA Doe project where uh, they were mentored by the uh, excellent people at the DNA Doe project. Um, I have to give a shout out to Gabrielle Vargas and also to Margaret Press there. They were truly phenomenal with our students. Um, and they worked actual real cases, unidentified human remains cases, and they successfully identified at least one. I think there's been two now. Um, mm. So for that type of outcome, I mean, I couldn't have asked for anything better than that to know that the, the students have been trained to a professional level that they're uh, successfully able to apply everything that they've learned. And then similarly, you know, with the mock cases that uh, the other students were given to see that they were able to successfully identify really was just absolutely outstanding. Oh, it must have been um, exciting for you just as the instructor and yes. seeing it all come together. Okay, mm -hmm. so everybody's dying to know where do they find you online? How do they uh, learn more about the program and perhaps even apply? Sure. Um, so if you go into Google and you type in University of New Haven and my name, Claire Glynn, uh, I should be the first thing that pops up. Uh, or if you just go to the University of New Haven website, which is www.newhaven.edu. And in the search bar there, just type in forensic genetic genealogy and the program will pop up. Uh, and you'll learn more about the program there, more about the course descriptions, things like that, and the application process. And right there on the right hand side, there's an apply now button uh, and you can go ahead and apply. Congratulations on getting this course together. And I just think it's fantastic. I love hearing that you're focused on the standards. Claire, exactly. thank you so much for joining me here on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. In the new article, Five Steps to 160,000, Take your family history book from pipe dream to words on a page with these tips. Author Sophia Wilson can help you reach your writing goals, and she's here to tell us more about it. Hi, Sophia. Good morning, Lisa. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. Well, this is a terrific article, and I'm sure that many folks like I, myself, have kind of that yearning to put down on paper in more of a narrative form, what we've learned about our family history, but it's really daunting sometimes. And I love that you've kind of laid this out in five basic steps. So tell us out of the gate before we jump into the five steps, is this really doable? <laughs> you know, it is when we do commit to just writing one little piece at a time, before we know it, we end up having a, a much larger document or history than we had imagined maybe from the beginning. Wonderful. And having the steps to kind of follow helps us kind of break it up even a little bit more. And you have here that step number one is to write down your own memories. Tell us a little bit about that. 
That's correct. So for me, this project began with a commitment to spend just 15 minutes every morning writing down the memories and, and stories and legends and things that had been shared with me during my life. And throughout this process, then I came to see how much I really knew about my family. And it then morphed into a project that was much larger than what I had originally set out to do. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of skip their own memories. And yet, when we do genealogy, we start with ourselves and work backwards. So that makes a lot of sense. Yes, I, I felt that it did. You know, as we become more of a digital society, we're seeing such a nice, you know, increase in availability of vital records and, and documents of that nature. But there's no way for us to record or recover lost memories. So I think it is critical that we make sure that we record the memories that we have. And then also, you know, write down the stories that, you know, our grandparents and others told us about their lives and memories of relatives that they had known growing up. That's a great point. And that takes us to step two, and it's to find the purpose, the scope, and the tone. So it sounds like it's almost like in genealogy, we create that research plan. Is that kind of what we're doing here? At this point, yes. Uh, after a few months of writing on a regular basis, I realized that my project had grown significantly beyond the uh, initial scope that I had set. There was one particular branch of the family that I wanted to research in greater depth. And so in order to accomplish that, I realized I needed to better articulate the scope that I wanted to embrace, identify the audience, and really communicate what it was or identify what it was that I wanted to accomplish. I think really that area of scope is sometimes so challenging because we have in our heads and on our computers kind of the whole big picture, the whole family tree, but that's a lot to take on in one writing. What kind of tips do you have for people on how to kind of select and narrow in on their scope? So for me, the project did begin at a very broad level, writing down memories of everyone that I had known in my life. And then I, I ended up choosing this one particular family line because the story resonated with me. So it was a very um, personal kind of instinctual decision. Ultimately, Lisa, I think it's important to focus on what we know about and what we're passionate about. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Makes it a little easier to, to take on the project and enjoy it too. And uh, that brings us to step number three. So you've got structure the long history. So structure the long, what's the long history? Sure. So when this project transitioned from being, you know, five to 10 page biographies or memories of people I knew into a significant history, I found that identifying, creating a structure was absolutely critical. And I explored several different types of structures, uh, whether that be, you know, a collection of biographies or uh, themes, you know, women in history or certain geographical regions. And finally, I settled on one particular structure that made the development process easier for me and also provided some interesting and very unexpected insights. Well, and in this article, I noticed you have a, a really nice kind of little breakout area where you're talking about the structure and kind of showing it, really breaking it down for folks so they can 
kind of see the elements and uh, what she focused on. So I, I encourage everybody, definitely, you're going to want to look at that part of the article because it's really helpful on this whole idea around structure. And then kind of once we have that, we've got step number four, building on existing research. So I imagine as you're starting to tell this story, um, you realize there's even maybe a little more work to do. Oh, absolutely. Genealogy research can go on forever. Yes. Yes. (laughs) There are endless expansions. But as I got more into the project, uh, I learned that, you know, there were secondary stories that I had ignored. And in fact, they were quite relevant to my own family's history and, you know, a variety of other things that were happening in society, both from a, from a local to a global level, that would have been significant in the lives of my ancestors. And you mentioned several different sites and tools that you kind of turn to. And you mentioned WorldCat. Tell folks a little bit just the fact that that is a card catalog and how you kind of use that. You tapped into it. Sure. So WorldCat was a wonderful uh, source for me to go in and to research books that had been written about the various geographies and times and locations and other aspects of my research. And it gave me insights, of course, as to where those documents are housed um, and how I could access them. Excellent. That's worldcat.org. And uh, I wholeheartedly agree. It's It's a wonderful kind of clearinghouse of all the available materials out there, sometimes that are available online, sometimes in person, but a wonderful resource. And then that brings us to step five, and it was decide where to stop and then publish. (laughs) So we really have to bring this to a conclusion, don't we? That's correct. You know, as we mentioned, research is never complete. There's always more that we can learn. And so it was important to me to establish a deadline for the project, whether that's a certain point of development or whether that's a date on the calendar. And know that, you know, it's okay if we don't include every single thing in that uh, edition, but we can go back later and release a second edition of, of our research. But we needed to reach that stopping point and to publish the information that we've collected. That's a really good point. I I think a lot of times we feel like it's a one and only, but really we can give ourselves permission to say this in a sense could be a a chapter of the history of our family and we can write another line, another edition, go back another century. Um, We have the freedom to do that, don't we? We sure do. We sure do. Well, it's a great framework, I think, that you've provided here in the article. Again, it's called Five Steps to 160,000. And is that 160,000 words? That is 160,000 words, yes. Wow. (laughs) And it's really doable because you've broken it down. And uh, Sophia Wilson's article is in the March-April 2022 issue a family tree magazine waiting to help you accomplish your goals in terms of writing and publishing about your family history. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for your help, Sophia. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you all today. As genealogists, we love vital records. They're essential to our research, but newspapers really have the unique ability to give us much more of the story. 
And vital records combined with stories really paint a vivid picture of our ancestors' experiences. Newspapers.com is the largest online newspaper archive with more than 700 million pages of newspapers, and it's really the perfect place to find those stories. So here to share more about what you can find is Jenny Ashcraft of Newspapers.com. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you for having me. Jenny, I'm so happy that you're here. I'd love talking about newspapers. Um, Have you ever had an experience where an ancestor that you're researching just kind of disappears from their records? And and how do you turn to newspapers to try to solve that? I absolutely have, in fact, more than once. But I can share a personal experience about how newspapers.com helped me to solve a genealogical mystery. Excellent. I have an ancestor, and her name is Elmira America Miller. She was the daughter of a Civil War soldier, and in the 1870 census, she was living in Pennsylvania, but then she just disappeared from the records. Did she get married? Did she die? I I couldn't figure it out, so I started searching on newspapers.com, and I used the search filter to drill down by year and location. And one day, I came across an 1890 article, and it mentioned her father, James Miller. And in this article, it said that his son-in-law, William Stuchel, was killed in a mining accident in Colorado. Now, this is nearly 1,700 miles away. Even though it didn't mention Elmira by name, I had a clue. And I was able to do some digging and confirm that this was her. And now I knew her husband's name. I discovered that newspaper articles about the accident were in Colorado and Kansas and Pennsylvania. I found their 1880 Colorado census records and realized that Elmira was using the nickname Lizzie. So I I would have never found her. I learned that William and Elmira traveled to Colorado with several of his Stuchel relatives Well, suddenly this whole story was emerging, and I felt a connection to this 35-year-old widow. There is just no way I could have ever found this information without newspapers.com. Oh my gosh, that's a great example of really the power of newspapers. So you did all this at newspapers.com. How many newspapers can we find over at newspapers.com, and what areas do they cover? Well, if you are trying to learn your ancestor stories or put together those missing pieces of your family puzzle, you will find more than 20,000 newspaper titles on newspapers.com. And every month we add more. We have papers from every single state and international papers, including the UK, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, and we just just in the last couple of weeks, added hundreds of new Canadian papers. Our collections go all the way back to 1690. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Jenny, for inspiring us to go after those newspaper stories. And newspapers.com offers a free seven-day trial. So that's the perfect opportunity to give it a try you might just find the story that will help you break through a genealogical brick wall. Thanks so much, Jenny. Thank you. If you're researching British ancestors, then you've probably heard of the UK-based genealogy website, Find My Past. 
They've been in the news recently with the much-anticipated release of the 1921 census of England and Wales. So I think it's a great time to brush up on some search strategies and also to reacquaint ourselves with all the great records that they have over there at Find My Past. So I've called on our friend and uh, Family Tree Magazine author, Rick Kroom, to share some of his tips from his article. It's called Find My Past, 12 Tips for Beginners. It's on the FamilyTreeMagazine.com website. Hi, Rick. Hi, Lisa. Well, there's been a lot of hoopla lately with the uh, release of the 1921 census. We always love to get our hands on newly available records. So that's been big over at Find My Past. But I'd love to have you kind of reacquaint everybody with just kind of a brief overview of what are the kinds of records can we find over there? Sure. Um, Find My Past, as you noted, is a very large genealogy website based in the United Kingdom. It has a focus on British and Irish records, but it now has large collections from the U.S. and Canada and other countries as well. I could give you a few examples of some key resources on Find My Past. For example, my ancestor Evan Powell died in 1819 in Bowrood in the county of Radnorshire, Wales. So I searched on his name with the year of death and location, and that search turned up a transcription created by the Poes Family History Society as part of the National Burial Index. And it says that Evan Powell was buried on March 3rd, 1819 at age 80 in the Anglican Church in Bowrood. And the National Burial Index is that it has more than 12 million names of people buried in England and Wales between 1452 and 2005, though most are from 1813 to 1850. And it's especially important because if you go to Family Search or Ancestry, most of the major genealogy websites have baptism and marriage records from England and Wales that were created by Family Search, but Family Search, for the most part, didn't index the burial records. So that's why this National Burial Index is important. Oh, yeah. It really helps to kind of know the, the specifics on what they have and what they don't, so you kind of know what you can look for and what may not be there. Um, you mentioned other kinds of records that they have, too. Uh, it's interesting that they have more and more in the U.S., too. Yes, they um, really do have a significant collection of records from North America. I have found the newspaper collection especially useful, and they cover not only the British Isles, but other countries as well. For example, my ancestor Samuel Jones lived in the parish of Flanagan, Breckenshire, Wales. So I selected the British newspaper's collection on Find My Past and searched on his name plus the name of the parish, Flanagan, as a keyword. And among the 18 matches is an article from the Hereford Journal newspaper dated January 29th, 1806. And it says to be sold by auction at the Fountain Inn in the town of Hay in the county of Brecon on Thursday, the 6th day of February, 1806, at that message that would be his household and farm and lands called Bryn Glessy, situate in the parish of Flanagan in the county of Brecon, now in the occupation of Samuel Jones. So that's quoting from the newspaper article. And I know that he had died the previous year at the age of 39. So it looks like his wife, not long after his death, um, sold the farm where the family lived. 
So wow. it's always, I love old newspaper articles and it's really interesting to find some one that mentions your ancestors and gives you an insight into their lives. Absolutely. With that kind of detail, it really helps you make sure you're looking at the right person. There's so many details about the when and the where and, and so far back. I mean, 1806, that's terrific. Yeah. And of course, the name Jones can be a challenge, especially yeah. in a place like Wales, where so many people have the last name Jones. But by combining his name with a keyword, I was able to focus on articles that actually were my ancestor, Samuel Jones. Right, in the right place. Wow. So tons of records to access there. And I know in the article, you had, I think, 12 strategies for people to kind of kind of search tips they could use to, to get better results. What's, what's some of the ones that you think everybody needs to know about? For example, tip number nine, see all your records. If you're a Find My Past member, you can click on the My Records tab at the top of the page and see a list of all of the records you've viewed on the site. So that can really um, help you avoid repeating research that you've already done. That's a neat feature. That's a great tip. Uh, We don't want to waste time doing the same thing over again, which can happen. Sure. Another tip, um, tip number 11, you can save time with saved searches. So after you run a search, you can click on save search on the left of your results page. And when you want to run the search again, click Save Searches under the My Account tab. So in this case, this is a way that you can find newly added records that might be on Family Search since you ran that same search before. So in some cases, it can be worth rerunning the same search over again so that you get matches on newly added records on Find My Past. So that's handy because, like you said, you can revisit it, but it also kind of gives you, it sounds like a breadcrumb trail of what you've already done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Another tip, tip number 12, search with a wild card. You can use a wild card in a name or a keyword to find alternate spellings and related words. Of course, we know that in historical records, our ancestors' names might have been spelled in a variety of ways, both their first names and their last names. They were much less consistent in spelling their names than we are today. So it's always worthwhile to broaden your search to look for alternate name spellings. Another possibility is that a name was transcribed wrong, so you want to try to catch um, those instances as well. So on Find My Past, you can use a question mark to stand in for one letter and an asterisk for zero or more letters. So that's pretty much the standard system that's used on other genealogy sites as well. So for example, my Robertson ancestors who lived in Scotland spelled their names a variety of ways. I found it spelled Robertson, Robinson, Robinson. So if I search on R-O-B question mark S-O-N, that finds instances where that middle letter could be anything like Robinson with an I or Robinson with an O, but that question mark stands for just one letter. But if I use an asterisk instead, so I have R-O-B asterisk S-O-N, that finds those spellings Robinson and Robinson, as well as Robson, Robinson, and Robertson. Uh, So that asterisk comes in really handy when doing a search on a name like that, that I know can be spelled a variety of ways. Right. Things weren't maybe as precise a couple of hundred years ago, (laughs) or you never know where there's just a typo. So you're really 
Yeah. And I imagine you're combining that with other unique information, maybe the location, the time frame, the first names, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It really pays to experiment with your searches, try different combinations of search terms, and sometimes, you know, do global searches, search individual record collections, all of those. It pays to try a variety of strategies. Well, good to know that they uh, support both that question mark and the asterisk. So Rick, Find My Past has always had a great collection and a growing collection of records. But this 1921 census for England and Wales, that's that's pretty exciting stuff. What should people be looking forward to finding in that particular record collection? The 1921 census of England and Wales is especially important because it's the only one that will be available until another 30 years or so when the 1951 census is released. That's because the 1931 census was destroyed in a fire. The 1941 census was not taken because of World War II. And the 1921 census had some unique features that make it especially interesting. For example, it was the first British census to recognize divorce. Another unique feature is that you might find the entry for your ancestors written in your ancestors' own handwriting because each head of household had to fill out a form with personal details on everyone who stayed overnight or returned the next morning. So that's not something you don't usually see your ancestors' handwriting in census records. The the census also shows the town or parish and county for those born in Great Britain and the country plus the state, province, or district for people who were born abroad. So that's really helpful to know the exact town or parish in Great Britain where somebody was born. Another unique feature of this census, Find My Past, is that unlike most census records that were digitized from black and white microfilm, these census records are color scans created from the original census records, so they should be really high-quality images. Wow, that can make a real difference, can't it, (laughs) when you're trying to to go through them all? And how interesting, you said that uh, when they visited the household, that they recorded even people who were visiting. And that's a bit different than we've been talking about the 1950 census that's coming out here in the US. And the enumerators were told real specifically to not enumerate somebody like that. Do you think that that we'll end up seeing some duplicates where people are mentioning folks who normally live there, and then other folks will be mentioning that same person because they were there to stay that evening? I hadn't thought about that. But that sounds like it could very well have happened. Yeah, so we'll have to uh, maybe not overlook if there's (laughs) the chance that we see the same person or what looks like the same person twice to kind of, you know, look more closely at that. And wow, so there's going to be a big gap between now and the next census that comes out. That's right. The 1939 Register of England and Wales on Find My Past and other sites was released a while back. So that also kind of fills in the gap for the 1931 and 1941 Mm -hmm. censuses that were lost. But, But otherwise, there will be a big gap here. And good to know that you've got actually 12 great tips here in the article. You can find it at FamilyTreeMagazine.com. It's in the website section, and it's called Find My Past, 12 Tips for Beginners. We always appreciate your tips, Rick. Thank you so much for uh, joining me here on the show. Sure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
Well, being a new year, it's a great time to start planning for upping your genealogy game. And you could do that with some continuing education. So let's stop over at the editor's desk to see what Amanda Epperson has for us at Family Tree University. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Lisa. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Okay, so we're all revved up. We're ready to to learn something new. What kind of courses have you got coming in February? We have five good courses coming up in February, and I'll just say a little bit about each of them. First is masterancestry.com in four weeks with Gina Philibert Ortega, which starts on February 7th. So that'll teach you all the ins and outs of using that really great site, Ancestry.com. And so that would be good. And then next after that is Become a Family History Detective with Sunny Jane Morton. And this one really focuses on analyzing documents that you find so that you can get every clue out of it and figure out, you know, document A, if I look at it right, it'll lead me to information that leads me to document B. So that is a really popular course. And then we have Researching African-American Ancestors with Shamel Jordan, which teaches you about best ways to research your African-American genealogy, which is mostly the same until you get to the 1870s when everything really changes for African-American genealogy compared to what you might be used to. In our fourth course in February, Six Ancestors in Six Days with Lisa also, we'll focus on a variety of documents, one per day. So like tax records on one day, birth records on the next, or immigration records on the third day. And it's set up so you can either search for, pick one ancestor for one record type. So if you are desperately trying to find an ancestor who immigrated in New York, you can look for his immigration record, but maybe he didn't have a birth record in the United States. So you want to skip, you know, find a different ancestor for the birth record day. Or you can pick one ancestor and try and find all six document types for that one ancestor. And then by the end of the week, you'd have an awful lot accomplished. In our final course for February, we have Google Earth for Genealogists with Lisa Louise Cook. Lisa, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about your course? <laughs> you bet. Well, this is one that we've we've done in the past, and it's going to be freshened up for 2022. And really what we're going to do is talk about the geography, talk about that location-based information that we need, essentially, to do our genealogy research, because, of course, families are based in time and location. And Google Earth is an amazing tool, and it's absolutely free. So we focus on those four weeks to show you some really kind of exciting ways that you can use it as a free tool to accomplish all kinds of things that maybe you haven't been able to do before. So it's such a fun class, Amanda. We just always have such a great time doing it. I'm excited to do it again in in 2022. Good. I'm glad to hear it. So we've got uh, lots of amazing courses, actually, to pick from. It's kind of exciting. So Mm -hmm. uh, Amanda has listed about five of them, I think, total for us. So you can head to the show notes for this episode, and we'll have links to each one of them. So you can go check them out and see what you want to accomplish this year. Amanda, thank you so much. You're welcome, Lisa. I'll talk to you soon. And that brings us to the close of another episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. Be sure and visit the show notes page for this episode. It's over at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at genealogygems.com and uh, check out the Genealogy Gems podcast. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.